One of the most significant pieces of legislation in the early history of the United States was the Northwestern Ordinances, passed in 1787 by a Congress meeting under the Articles of Confederation. While its immediate concern was what to do with the lands between the Great Lakes and Ohio River, it set out a roadmap for American expansion in the two-plus centuries to come. Included in the ordinances were a three-step process for new territories that wished to become a state. The first step was for the appointment of a governor, secretary, and three-judge panel. The second was for a popularly elected assembly and non-voting delegate in Congress once the population reached 5,000 citizens. The third step was for the drafting of a state constitution and petitioning Congress for admittance once the population reached 60,000 citizens. That's it. The whole process for going from a territory to a state. It's the same process that every state that has joined the U.S. has adhered to. But while on paper it's just a matter of population and dotting some I's and crossing some T's, we all know that it's way more complicated than that. Politics is everywhere, and when and how a new state was to be admitted was always a thorny question for those trying to keep the status quo. So when Arizona and New Mexico started making loud noises at the turn of the 20th century about wanting to be let into the club, it was not unexpected that opposition would arise. However, in this case, Arizona soon found itself in the uncomfortable position of battling back against not just a denial of statehood, but something it feared even more. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 159, Asinine Wisdom. Welcome back, everyone. Now that we have wrapped up our short series talking about the Phoenix Indian School, it's time we turn our attention back to territorial politics. And by that, I mean the politics surrounding Arizona not being a territory anymore. I think it's safe to say that Arizona was always more eager to join the Union than the Union was to have Arizona join it. As we saw in episodes 32 and 37, in the 1850s and 1860s, there was a lot of local agitation to split Arizona off from New Mexico. Heck, one of the reasons that the men of southern Arizona elected to side with the Confederacy during the Civil War was because they thought the rebel government would be a faster conduit for becoming an organized territory. And in the decades following Abraham Lincoln officially splitting off Arizona from New Mexico, we have such prominent figures as Richard C. McCormick and Granville Ari working in Congress to make Arizona a state. We also saw in episode 131 that a constitutional convention was held in 1891 to draft a document outlining what such a state would look like, even if it got nowhere because of its rabid pro-silver provisions. Basically, Arizona spent a couple decades hoping to become a territory, and almost immediately after that, it started clamoring to become a state. Well, that's still not going to happen in today's episode, but in the early 1900s, the issue roared to life again. Though, as historian Howard R. Lamar writes, 
the prolonged struggle between 1901 and 1912 for Arizona and New Mexico to be admitted into the Union is the longest sustained admission fight in U.S. history. And Lamar says the reason it did take so long is that the issue of statehood became wrapped up in three nationwide debates. The first was the issue of American imperialism, and if, following the Spanish-American War, places like Puerto Rico and the Philippines should remain U.S. territories, or if one day they might actually become full-fledged states. It didn't help Arizona's case that these territories, considered by many Americans to be backward and uncivilized, had come from Spain, the very place that Arizona and New Mexico had come from. So for many, it was an easy leap to think that Arizona and New Mexico might be as equally backward and just another territory for the U.S. to hang on to. The second issue was one of President Theodore Roosevelt's big hobby horses, conservation. By the dawn of the 20th century, the Court of Public Land Claims was wrapping up its work, and millions of acres of public domain lands across the two territories were being moved into national forests. 15% of Arizona and 12% of New Mexico would eventually go into the national forests, and thus out of the hands of farmers, ranchers, and homesteaders. In addition to the rancor this caused, new federal regulations were also causing a stir. By 1906, shepherds and ranchers needed a license to graze their animals on public lands, while lumber outfits had to obey cutting and conservation measures. As you can imagine, this was generating a whole lot of ill will toward the administration. Finally, the national political scene involved a deep split in the Republican Party between conservatives and progressives. And if our own highly charged political climate has taught us anything, it's that any issue no matter how small, can become a radioactive political football at the drop of a hat. So, at first, the progressive Republicans in Congress opposed statehood for Arizona and New Mexico because they thought it was part of some conservative plot. Then, in 1908, after the conservative William Howard Taft became president, he opposed statehood because he thought it was some sort of progressive plot. Lamar says, quote, not since the slavery issue had complicated the emission of new states between 1820 and 1860 had there been so many issues to hamper the cause of statehood. End quote. In Washington, D.C., Arizona's longtime congressional delegate, Marcus Aurelius Smith, whom I still think has the coolest name, would submit a bill asking for statehood every year, but these efforts always went nowhere. The fight really kicked into high gear in 1902 with the introduction of an omnibus bill that would admit Arizona, New Mexico, and Oklahoma as states. Smith had joined forces with Bernard S. Rodney, New Mexico's congressional delegate who was actually nicknamed Statehood Rodney, and several other powerful men in Congress to finally get this bill passed. As a sign of things to come, a congressman from Indiana tried to attach an amendment to this bill that would have admitted New Mexico and Arizona as one single state, which he suggested should be called Montezuma, because politicians of this era really liked trying to draw a line between the Aztecs and Arizona for some odd reason. Smith, as you might imagine, was not happy about this amendment at all, and gave speeches arguing that the territory was too large to be governed as one state, 
that New Mexico and Arizona had completely different cultures and that both had already erected capital buildings. Arizona's rather expensive capital was only about a year old at this point, so there was no sense in letting that go to waste. Smith's arguments must have been plenty persuasive as the amendment was defeated 106 to 28, and the bill passed the House of Representatives on May 9, 1902. This was a major victory, but the idea of sewing Arizona and New Mexico together, which would eventually be labeled jointure, would take years and a lot more speeches before it finally gave up the ghost. However, the bigger problem now was a man named Albert J. Beveridge, a senator from Indiana. Beveridge was an eloquent speaker, a progressive Republican, an ardent nationalist, and an imperialist. He also just so happened to be the chair of the Senate Committee on Territories, which put him directly in the way of the Senate passing the bill. Beveridge had walked away from the Spanish-American War with a very low opinion of both the formerly Spanish-held territories and the people within them. His opinions had been reinforced when he had actually taken a trip to the Philippines after the end of the war and was appalled by the low standard of living there. With this worldview, he naturally was against letting Arizona and New Mexico into the Union, and so in June 1902, in a vote of 6-4 to along strict party lines, the Committee on Territories voted to hold the omnibus bill until the next congressional session. Historian Jay Wagner says that had the bill actually been allowed out of committee, it probably would have passed as it had support of all the Democrats in the Senate and about a dozen Republican votes lined up behind one of Smith's close associates. But not content with just holding up the bill, Beveridge decided that he needed to prove that his low opinion of Arizona was right. So in the early fall of 1902, Beveridge and his committee went on a fact-finding mission to the territories in question. My sources almost uniformly describe this as a whirlwind tour, with the group staying just long enough for Beveridge to confirm his negative opinions, but not long enough for he and his associates to get any real information about the state of things. During a speech in the House in 1903, Smith would comment on this rush trip by saying, quote, I met the committee, I never could have overtaken it, at Phoenix, and it remained one day, and investigated a police judge and some census enumerators, and had some interpreter with them scouring the town to see whether some Mexicans could not be found who could not speak English and prove valuable witnesses for the purpose of the investigation. End quote. And Smith's not really wrong about this. By his speed and the questions he asked, it was clear that Beveridge liked American Oklahoma, but was not a fan of Arizona and New Mexico at all. Early state historian James H. McClintock, writing just under a decade and a half after this visit, sums it up by saying, quote, The chairman came prepared to see Arizona at its worst. He almost omitted consideration of the great mining and irrigation enterprises, but took good care not to miss the gambling and all aspects of urban depravity. He wanted to be informed particularly about the Indian and Mexican population, and he saw cactus rather than alfalfa fields, and barren hills rather than the mines that in them lay. End quote. For Beveridge, Arizona was still part of some great American desert, lacking in good soil, enough water, a sustainable population, and basically everything else you needed to support a civilization. 
Also, as Smith and McClintock rightfully noted, he had a condescending attitude toward anyone of a Hispanic background, considering them second-class citizens at best who wouldn't or couldn't fit into American society. Lamar goes so far as to say that for Beveridge, the refusal of some to learn English was tantamount to a mild form of treason. And just to show how bad Arizona really was, he pointed out that not only did they have Mexicans, but Mormons as well. Then there was a sort of political paranoia that also infused his sentiments. He couldn't fail to notice that some of his esteemed senatorial colleagues, the very ones who were supporting this push for statehood, just so happened to be investors in mines and railroads. From this, he drew the conclusion that there really wasn't a popular push for statehood. It was all a scheme of mining and railway robber barons to gain political control of the area. Beveridge would also give an interview where he said that the Democratic minority in the Senate were pushing through this bill so that these new states would join the Union and send more Democrats as their congressmen and senators. The worst part of this is that these arguments actually gained a lot of traction, and Beveridge was able to persuade many of his colleagues to jump on the anti-statehood bandwagon. And this is why we can forgive Arizonans for being a little skittish about making national headlines, such as with the Pleasant Valley War, especially the murder of Tom Graham and the acquittal of Ed Tewksbury. Political and business leaders were always certain that this kind of news was going to play into the stereotype that the territory was still too wild and unruly to become a state. One of Beveridge's backers was Senator Thomas Bard of California, who insisted that people living in Arizona and New Mexico were not intelligent enough to deserve statehood. For this, he was verbally assaulted by former Arizona Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy while giving an interview in San Francisco. Marcus Aurelius Smith would do the same while visiting in Los Angeles. In fact, editorials from the Arizona press disparaging Bard would eventually lead to public opinion turning against him and his defeat at the polls in 1904. And once territorial leaders learned of Beveridge's hostility toward their eventual statehood, they couldn't send people to Washington fast enough to give positive testimony to the Committee on Territories. Still, when the bill was brought out of committee in January 1903, Beveridge only urged statehood for Oklahoma and really didn't mention anything about Arizona or New Mexico at all. However, even then, the pro-statehood forces were not too worried. Not only did friendly senators turn in reports saying that Arizona and New Mexico were ready, but no less a figure than William Randolph Hearst, then serving as a congressman from New York, led another delegation out west. This one produced a much more favorable report when it came to statehood. Beveridge did everything in his power to defeat the measure, from lining up more anti-statehood senators to employing filibustering. Then he decided to defeat the bill using a tactic that would have made Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus proud. You see, Senate protocol dictated that, as a courtesy, no vote could proceed without the chairman of the territories committee present. So Beveridge just didn't show up. He literally went and hid for a week on the third floor of the house of the chief of the Forest Service, another person who was against statehood. 
At the end of the week, the time had passed for the bill to be considered that session of Congress, and he came out of hiding knowing that he had put a stop to this nonsense. For now. Oh, by the way, if you don't know who Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus is, go read about Julius Caesar's consulship. It gets pretty wild with questionable political maneuverings like this. But as frustrating as Beveridge's opposition was, the next major roadblock proved to be more infuriating. Because in 1904, the call for Arizona and New Mexico to be lumped together into some sort of terrible Frankenstein state was renewed. A bill was introduced into the House to admit Oklahoma and the Indian Territory as one state, and a combined Arizona-New Mexico as another state. Wouldn't you know it, this came with the full support of Beveridge too, who declared that this combination, once again known as jointure, made sense and would meet his admission criteria. Smith caustically said of Beveridge's support for this idea, quote, he proceeds from his own argument on the principle that one rotten egg is bad, but two rotten ones would make a fine omelet, end quote. McClintock says that Beveridge forced this bill through his committee in hours before turning it over to the whole Senate. Smith, meanwhile, was fighting against jointure tooth and nail. He made all sorts of arguments, including that Arizona's close business and political ties were with California, not New Mexico, which was more eastward-facing. And there were demographic arguments to be made as well. New Mexicans, many with a Hispanic heritage, didn't want to go from being a majority to a minority after jointure. At the same time, the white population of Arizona didn't relish the idea of suddenly having a lot more Mexican-Americans living in what would be their state. Most Arizonans, especially the press, backed Smith up in these arguments, with the Tucson citizen denouncing the quote-unquote asinine wisdom of the House of Representatives. One little tidbit about this first push is that when the council, the upper body in Arizona's territorial legislature, learned about jointure, they actually approved a resolution in favor of it. I don't have their full reasoning down, but it appears to have been an attitude of statehood was what they really wanted, so they could tolerate joining with New Mexico under certain conditions. Although Wagner does say that the head of the council may have been trying to get the legislature to go along with the bill so Smith could insert a poison pill of an amendment that would have allowed the two territories to vote on combining, a tactic that will come back around. However, when this resolution was sent to the territory's House of Representatives, it was repudiated with an unanimous vote. The House would send a telegram to Smith saying unequivocally that, quote, Arizona will always fight against any policy, even by implication, through which she may lose her name, identity, and history. End quote. The good news is that while this bill in 1904 did pass the House, it was defeated in the Senate. The bad news is that jointure is an idea that would take a while to die. The bill would come back in 1905, and Arizonans were still just as hot and bothered about it as before. Newly appointed Governor Joseph H. Kibbe voiced his opposition to it in a written message to the legislature in March 1905, just three days after taking office. Now, this was a pretty gutsy thing for him to do because Kibbe had been appointed by President Roosevelt, 
and Roosevelt was actually fully behind Beveridge's view on the territories not being ready for statehood individually, and he publicly backed the jointure movement. In fact, Roosevelt put a lot of pressure on Kibbe and the governor of New Mexico to accept jointure, almost to the point of ordering them to do so. And in what might be my favorite bit of minutiae from this whole drama, the Phoenix City Council was so incensed by the president's stance on this issue that they voted to rename Roosevelt Street in the city's downtown to Cleveland Street. This time around, Arizona businessmen also joined in the fight. Another congressional delegation toured the territory in October 1905 to see conditions there, and this time they were ferried around in a special train consisting of the private cars of the various heads of the railway lines in the territory. Everywhere they went, they were wined and dined in spectacular fashion. While in Metcalf, an old mining town now covered by the tailings of the Morency Mine, they were treated to a banquet in one of the mines that had been rigged with electricity and turned into a grand dining hall. Of course, Smith made sure they capped off their tour by visiting the Grand Canyon. This group quickly became Arizona boosters, with one congressman from Wisconsin commenting, quote, I voted for a joint statehood bill once, but I will never do it again, end quote. And before this delegation even arrived, a journalist named M.G. Cunniff also came to Arizona to see what all the red-hot fervor was really about. Cunniff spent his time asking everyone he came across what they thought of jointure. He would later report that the people in New Mexico were for getting quote-unquote half a loaf if they couldn't get full statehood for themselves. However, in Arizona, he found a whole different attitude. Cunniff would write, quote, Men did not merely say, we don't want joint statehood. They made speeches. They shot forth their reasons. They told stories. They made parables. Lawyers overwhelmed me with arguments. Doctors analyzed the situation. Storekeepers detained me to tell me all about it. Conductors hung over rear seats of cars to discuss it. Mining men, businessmen, teachers, editors, Democrats, Republicans, prohibitionists were all in the same mood. End quote. McClintock tells us that citizens formed an anti-joint statehood league and that anti-jointure resolutions were passed by the territorial legislature, county boards of supervisors, city councils, boards of trade, bar associations, women's clubs, the press association, the miners association, and religious conventions. A delegation was even sent to Washington to present these resolutions along with a petition obtained at the Territorial Fair in Phoenix. Just to show you what sentiment was like, this petition garnered 3,200 signatures in half an hour. It's around this time that Arizona also began tossing around the idea that joint statehood was actually breaking the implicit promise made by President Abraham Lincoln when he formed the Arizona Territory in February 1863. The Organic Act that Lincoln had signed had language in it saying that the territorial government would be continued until, quote, such time as the people residing in said territory shall, with the consent of Congress, form a state government, Republican in form as prescribed by the Constitution of the United States, and apply for and obtain admission into the Union as a state on equal footing with the original states. End quote. Politicians rallied around this argument and started demanding that Congress not break Honest Abe's implied promise to them. 
Former Territorial Governor Murphy gave an interview to the Washington Post in the fall of 1905 saying, quote, As long as that obnoxious proposition is before Congress, I shall be in this vicinity, seeking to oppose it by every legitimate means. End quote. I should note here that not everyone was against the idea, as both former governors Louis C. Hughes and Myron H. McCord, who were still living in the territory, both were for the notion. However, they, and the smattering of other politicians of the same mind, were soundly in the minority on this one. Ironically enough, one of the voices who spoke loudly against this bill in 1905 was none other than Senator Bard, now a lame duck because the Arizona press had raised such a stink that he was not re-elected in 1904. Bard's position hadn't changed. He still didn't think Arizona and New Mexico were ready to be real states, but he also thought admitting them as one big state was ludicrous. No one from either territory, he argued, had applied to Congress for joint statehood, and Congress had never admitted any state except the people asked to join the Union. Also, the size of the proposed state was too huge to govern effectively. Its area was the size of the 13 states stretching from Maine to South Carolina. Finally, he too endorsed the idea that Lincoln had promised Arizona singular statehood, and that could not be denied. The statehood bill came out of committee in January 1906 and was quickly passed by the House, despite an attempt to amend it to separate the two territories. Once it was in the Senate, Beveridge rose to defend the bill from all attacks and gave a pretty masterful oratory supporting his position. Titled Arizona the Great, his speech flatly denied that Arizona had ever been promised, implicitly or explicitly, separate statehood. He then laid out his grand vision of this large southwest state that would be called Arizona, to keep them on board, while having its capital at Santa Fe, to keep New Mexican support. Beveridge grew rapturous as he concluded with, quote, And what a glorious state this new Arizona would be, second in size and eminent in wealth among the states of the greatest of nations, Arizona standing midway between California and Texas, three giant commonwealths guarding the republic's southwestern border, end quote. And a few lines later, quote, Not Arizona the little, but Arizona the great. Not Arizona the provincial, but Arizona the national. Not Arizona the creation of a politician's device, but Arizona the child of the nation's wisdom. How its people and the people of the republic will glory in such an Arizona. For it is such an Arizona this bill will create, end quote. But Smith had one more trick up his sleeve to stop beverage, flowery oratory and all. He induced anti-jointure Senator Joseph R. Foraker of Ohio to introduce an amendment into the statehood bill in February 1906 that basically allowed for Arizona and New Mexico to hold referendums on combining. The amendment itself had actually been written by Smith, though it had Foraker's name on it. Lamar says that Forker's eloquence and the progressive love of referendums allowed this amendment to be approved 42 to 29 after some debate. Then, shortly after this, another amendment was passed that struck Arizona and New Mexico from the statehood part of the bill, leaving only Oklahoma to be voted on for admission into the Union. But they now were able to hold their votes to see what their populace preferred. 
This was held in November 1906, and predictably, Arizona soundly, and I mean soundly, voted against joining with their neighbor to the east. The final tally was 16,265 votes against it, and only 3,141 votes for it. The twist is that in New Mexico, things worked out a little differently. Jointure had always been more popular there, so voters actually said yes to combining with Arizona, with the final tally being 26,195 votes for and 14,735 votes against. Though Lamar says there was some evidence of election fraud in the New Mexico vote as officials tried to appease Roosevelt and Beveridge. Still, if you tallied the two results up, the anti-jointure vote squeezed ahead with a narrow victory of 1,664 votes. What's interesting, though, is that Lamar also says the New Mexico vote might have been part of a 4D chess game being played by the boss of the territory's Republican machine. Some scholarship supports the idea that this boss, a confirmed single statehood backer, wanted New Mexico to approve jointure as a means to get what he actually wanted. The thinking was that after Arizona predictably shot down jointure while New Mexico approved it, it would be seen as his territory being willing to work with and show deference to Congress, the President, and the Union, while the unruly mob next door was still unfit for the statehood they craved. In that case, maybe New Mexico would be rewarded with single statehood for being such a good little boy. It's an interesting theory, if true. As we move into 1907 and 1908, the threat of joint statehood began to pass. In his last message to Congress in 1908, even Roosevelt himself changed his mind and advocated for Arizona and New Mexico to be admitted as separate states. This change could be because the Republican Party had also endorsed separate statehood and because in 1908 Arizona had elected a Republican, Ralph H. Cameron, to be its congressional delegate. Beveridge's animosity and opposition never wavered, though his reasons became increasingly political. In fact, in 1909, he urged President Taft not to sign any statehood bills because it would mean adding two Democratic senators and two non-reforming Republican senators from Arizona and New Mexico, respectively. By then, the threat of jointure had fully passed, and it was becoming apparent that gaining statehood was just a matter of time. However, that's a story for another day. For now, I'm going to leave off with a quick programming announcement. There will be no new episodes for the next couple of weeks. As anyone in the States knows, Thursday is Thanksgiving, and I am traveling out of state to spend it with family, which means no episode for November 26. The bad news is we are actually going to be gone for over a week, meaning that I won't have time to put out an episode for December 3rd either. Just to rip the band-aid off now, looking at the calendar and my holiday plans, I think we're going to have two new episodes in December before breaking for Christmas and New Year's and starting up again regularly on January 7th. But join me back here on December 10th as we start a run of episodes exploring the problems of water and irrigation that plagued southern Arizona at the turn of the 20th century. And we have to start by asking the question, whatever happened to the American traveler's best friend, the Akamel Odom.
I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.